0: Digital setting circles on episode 302 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the nighttime sky. And this episode is for anybody like me who is wondering about digital setting circles. But uh, first, Shane, did you get any observing in this week?
1: Um, trying to think when we last spoke. Um, I believe I did. And that was to play with the digital setting circles, Chris, we're, we're going high tech, (laughs) but, um, it was a, it was a pretty lackluster observing session. I tried, it was last Sunday evening. I believe I tried, um, I tried to see the comet, the uh, ZTF, uh, what is it? E3, something, something, something. Um, I was unsuccessful seeing the comet from the backyard, but I did play around with the setting circles, which we'll get into yep. shortly, yep. but I know you were observing the comet and I'm very curious to hear about your observations.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, first of all, I'm, I've am i always been digital setting circle curious, maybe is the way to put it, <laughs> um, just for a whole variety of reasons. So I'm really excited to to talk to you about it. You know, and Shane, the best part about doing these podcasts with with you, sort of in particular, is that is that for me, like I think I'm probably the worst person to do a podcast with because I think about getting something and I talk about it for like two or three years, and then maybe I decide to do it or not do it. And that's really not that interesting. Whereas you go out, and you think digital setting circles, I'll try that. And then it's like, how do they work what are they like can I come over and try it you know it's really a lot of fun
1: <laughs> well I'm glad I can cure your curiosity I guess
0: <laughs> so I did get out yeah I get out and observe the common I was out a couple times I think in a, I think what will be a previous episode with an end this comes out we we talked about it on our live show and uh I was able to get on it on Thursday night uh, it was a little cold um and so I didn't really observe that long but last night uh Mike and I did a big session.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was, uh, you, you texted and I was, you know, this, the conditions were looking pretty good and I was any other night I would have come with you guys, except it was, uh, my, my anniversary with my wife. And, uh, so as such, we had a nice supper at home and, and, uh, enjoyed some, some TV shows, but, uh, tell me about the session.
0: Yeah. So we, uh, we met up at my place, Mike, uh, Mike popped by cause, Um, where we go is just on this. It's to say it's a grid road. It's more like a grid highway. Like it gets a little bit of traffic. You get a car about every 10 or 15 minutes, which kind of sucks in the summer. You can pull right off the road. Like there's, um, like publicly accessible farm roads out there and they, they cut through the grids and, and nobody takes them. They're, uh, they're rough. So you need an off-road vehicle to drive them. But, uh, but once you get on those for a few hundred meters, you're, uh, essentially, way you know we're miles like you know ten miles away from the nearest outdoor light, and the strange thing is is this starts right behind my house, so I can actually I can actually get to this spot in twelve minutes from my house,
1: oh, wow, that's convenient,
0: <laughs> it is, and it's almost magnitude six hmm. probably. It's probably in the darkest part of the sky. would be magnitude six. The the light dome from the city takes up about a third of the sky, but the rest of the third of the sky or the rest, two thirds of the sky, well, one third is approaching about uh, six magnitude and the rest is uh, about uh, you know, 5.2, 5.3. So it's not bad considering it's a dozen mm-hmm. minutes uh, for me to get here or to that spot. Yeah, that's awesome. The downside, there's two, two or three downsides to that spot. Uh, one of the downsides is, and I was telling you about this before, is that um, the location is is completely open. There's not one tree. I forget how large the area is. It's like several hundred square kilometers. There's not one tree. It's mm-hmm. completely open and it's a little bit higher than the city. And because of that, it gets a little bit of wind always. There's always a breeze, which is good in the summer for keeping the insects away. But when it's like minus 10, like it was last night, it can be a little bit more chilly and it always tracks much colder than like uh, my house. So it was minus two at my house. We get out there, it was minus six. When I got home, it was minus seven. So it was minus 11 when we had left that site. And it's hard to believe four, it's uh, four degrees cooler out there. And if uh, if I actually was able to get onto the roof of my house, um, I think I could actually see the spot that we're at. So hmm. it, uh, it's not that far away, but it is it is a lot colder. So we did get out. Main thing was to look at the comet. I set up my 60 millimeter Takahashi. Um, and then Mike set up his 12-inch reflector. Um, spent a long time looking at M42 because uh just like a beautiful winter evening, it was super high approaching the meridian, and uh we uh we were able to pull out um a little bit of color there.
1: Yeah, awesome. yeah, that's um that's always fun or er- uh, always a good observation when you can tease out some color in M42.
0: Yeah, there's like these large some people call them like the bat wings. They're like there's these big sort of edges to the cloud and and kind of where the edges are, and sort of thinking about it, and we were talking about it as we observed it. Um the the brighter portions of the nebula, uh, they're they're the parts that kind of have this sort of reddish tinge to them. And, and you notice that, like, I wasn't even thinking of looking at the color in it and you notice them in the 12 right away Mm -hmm. and I couldn't see them in my 60 millimeter, but you, you could see the, just, just the brighter parts were actually a little bit of red. And then in the other parts we could see like towards the trapezium, we could see it almost as like a, like a blue cast to it, a little purpley in the white, um, you know, it was, it was really nice. So probably spent like a third of our time actually looking at M42, um, and we spent, uh, quite a bit of time on the Comet as well. Comet, uh, uh, C 2022 E3, ZTF and right away, Mike put it on that in the 12 inch. I'd been out a few nights before looking at it, at my 60 and, uh in the 60 last night, it was definitely fainter. I think, uh, a few nights ago, it was like, I, I probably would have put it at magnitude 5.7, 5.8 maybe. Okay. And Last night it was definitely fainter than six. It the tail I could barely get the tail in my sixty. Whereas you know uh, a few nights ago I thought the tail was reasonably easy. But in the twelve inch Mike scope I think had uh, about a one half uh, degree field of view. Uh, the tail stretched beyond the whole field of view for me. I had to kind of pan the scope around. Okay, but I was I, I was estimating the tail was was at least a couple degrees uh, anyway in the twelve inch. Uh, uh, that, that Mike had set up there he, he Mike it was it's interesting to observe with Mike so it's funny you know Mike has a little bit more experience by about I think I think he has about 10 more years experience than I do observing um we both observe in somewhat similar ways in some ways very different but his and my eyes are very very different um like the focus point on the telescope is different for us and then like sometimes, um like he's able to pick up a comet like we were looking for a faint comet in the in the spring sky and i could not get it like no matter what i did and he came over took my telescope headed in the telescope in like 30 seconds or something ridiculous <laughs> and then had to like walk me through how to find it and then like last night he was like so where's the tail?" and i was so i described so kind of like a I was like and I and we talked about this. And I'm always so surprised. Like there's some things that I seem like I can get. And then there's things that like you really have to walk me through to see. Like sometimes like the faint galaxies that he's finding. I'm mm-hmm. like, I, like, where is it? Like, I don't see it. So it's it's amazing just to notice the differences in just our perception under, under low light. I'm not sure why that is. So typically Mike would pick up different things. And and so last night, Mike really picked up the anti-tail super easy and had to walk me through where that was. So I could see the main tail, but then the other part of the tail he uh, he had to guide me to to see. Um, I think there's a lesson there and the lesson is that it doesn't matter how long you observe and 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 maybe how good you get in the skills that you develop because Mike and I both have considerable skill, I think. Um, you can work together to see more. And I think that's, that's one thing that I've kind of learned like observing with like you and Mike and Rick and Kathleen and, and other folks that we observe with on the regular is, is that by, by kind of working together, you can see a lot more. And, uh, I think it's, it's valuable to try to find like at least one other observing partner if you can, or if not, you know, hopefully, you know, and we hear from people all the time, Shane, and, in, in doing this podcast, Maybe maybe we can be that sort of voice in your ear if you're wearing your earbuds while you're while you're looking through the scope.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's um that's a really good point, actually, just about how we do see things differently and certain features or details maybe stand out to one observer more than the other. And if somebody guides you through that, sometimes it helps you to see things a bit better. And I've certainly had that experience with newer astronomers. Um, you know, looking for galaxies and what is very apparent to me uh, is sometimes not so apparent to somebody that's new to observing. Mm. And, you know, when I walk them through, you know, see the bright star on the left. Okay. We'll go a little ways, at, you know, say three o'clock on a clock dial and you should see a faint puffy thing. And they'll say, oh yeah, now I do. And (laughs) well, that's the galaxy. And, and, you know, I think, um, Uh, I think when you have more people around you doing stuff like that, like you said, Chris, it just, uh, you're going to see more and you're probably going to develop your own skills, uh, uh, you know, to different levels too.
0: Yeah. And I think as well, it kind of goes back to, you know, when I was, when I was first getting into astronomy and learning things and I kind of eventually hit a wall, I guess, um, for me anyway. And at the time, you know, there was no podcast. There was, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, literature out there. I sort of had my sky and telescope and astronomy magazine subscriptions, but, uh, you know, it was more challenging to find uh, those observers. And eventually I did find some observers and eventually did join an astronomy club um, and found like a couple people, people, uh, four or five people that I really enjoyed observing with and, and did a- observe with on the regular. And I, I always like that. It's kind of like, um, I always like to think of it as it's a little bit like having an observing team, you know, like, like it is, it is sort of a group activity in a way more so than, than I think, uh, at least for me, than, than otherwise it would be. Now you can see lots on your own, but it's when I started observing with others and learning those skills that uh, that's when that's when my skill really, you know, became advanced. I, I would never have become this advanced on on my own with without any doubt. So um, and then to continue to experience that, it's kind of a bit of a high because,, um, you know, just like it was 20 years ago when I started doing that or 25 years ago now, I suppose, um, to still be able to go out and observe with other people and for them to guide me through and see like the anti-tale, for example, last night, which I really did struggle to see. I never would have seen it on my own. Um, but to be guided towards that and and to actually see these things for myself instead of, um, you know, just kind of seeing it in, in a photograph or sketch or whatever. But I think that's one thing people can do is if you are observing on, on your own or whatever, you know, hope you enjoy this podcast and it helps full part of that. And then as well, you know, you can uh you know try to find some local observers or or make some. And then uh you can uh also like participate in like online forums, not like cloudy nights. And I think the sketching forum there is really good to see what other people are observing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um always always enjoy cloudy nights, and it's another great resource just to augment uh you know your your observing really. We also tried for the horse head last night. Okay, and well,
0: <laughs> we we looked for it for a long time. Mm-hmm. I'll say this. I, I probably saw it because we found IC434, which is the nebula the horse head is contrasted mm-hmm. in front of. And I found the area and we could see like the waves in IC434. Um, but we didn't bring a chart or anything. We didn't like plan to go looking for it. It just, the night, the night looked like it was going to be pretty good, but it ended up being excellent for like about an hour. And then we we're just trying to make the most of it. Um, so probably one of the, well, one of the notches we saw it definitely was the horse head. It was just that, uh, well, we, we didn't know what one because we didn't bring a chart.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, still, still a good observation. Yeah. Looked at, uh, M35
0: was pretty nice. We looked for the jellyfish nebula, but again, uh, Mike did bring a chart, but the he brought his double star chart and it wasn't on the jellyfish but It wasn't wasn't on that. That's like a hydrogen beta object up uh up past M35. Cause I had my two inch um H beta filter and Mike uh Mike and I put that on my 32 millimeter Mass Yama, put that in a scope and also had his forty millimeter teleview in the uh in the 12 inch. So with the para course. So it gives you like a seven millimeter exit people. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that's it for my observation. Uh, Then the fog moved in. Mm. We started packing up and we we were just like getting ready. And then we saw it and I was like, oh no, is that the fog? And it's always, that's always in the back of my mind. I I didn't even think we'd get fog last night. I thought just with the little bit of wind that we had and you could see it falling, it falls out of the sky and we are just high enough that it's like being on the the top of a volcano or something and the fog is down below us so it fell and then we it actually got darker because the fog was now obscuring all the lights below us and it was actually very very thick and so we were like well we'll just uh we'll just observe so we observed for another 10 or 15 minutes and then packed up um and then like driving home we're driving down this hill and by hill i mean the hill is like 5 miles by you know, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 meters. So <laughs> It mm-hmm. it draws very gradually. Eventually you drive through the fog and then we get down below and you could barely see the stars. And in parts you couldn't see anything, but a hundred meters in front of you, it was so foggy.
1: Hmm. Wow. Um, what was I going to say about the fog? Um, what time, about what time was that? That would have
0: been at about quarter after nine.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you probably didn't have a lot longer to go until the moon started to rise anyway. So probably not a uh, bad timing overall. Yeah.
0: We were, we were starting to get cold, like, cause we had dressed reasonably warm. Like we had dressed more for like minus two to minus six. And when we first got out there and it was only minus six, we could feel the cold then. But like I said, by the time we left, it was bordering on minus 11 It was pretty much minus 11 by the time we left. And so that, that is cold. And there was like a little bit of wind and yeah. We sort of had our fill after two hours and we're also not able to get far off the road because we, we, there's a, there's a couple spots on the road that I've, uh, specked out beforehand. It's hard to find because the road is, is featureless. There's nothing on this road. There's no trees. There's just this long, slow, gradual Hill that rises as you drive South. And, um, uh, holy cow, like it is open out there, but there's like a couple spots that I've, that I know exactly where they are, like so many kilometers from the entrance Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the road widens out by like eight or 10 feet in these spots. So we just kind of went, went to, to this spot, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was a good night, decent night, but, uh, unless you can get way off the road, you get kind of sick of the cars after, you know, every 10 or 15 minutes, someone goes flying by. (laughs) It's annoying. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, Shane, I've got questions for you. I've got questions. Well, let's you. go. Let's switch topics to digital setting circles. Ah, right. So let's just, let's just start. And th- this is, you know, it's funny. I, I got to say this first. Um, sometimes I'll bug Shane about, <laughs> about something. And he's like, you know, why don't we just make a podcast about that? I'm like, oh yeah, we have this podcast. This like, this is an episode. So I was just going to actually talk to Shane about digital setting circles and he was like, well, you know, I was kind of thinking maybe we could do a podcast on that. I was like, well, there's that too, I guess. So here we go. <laughs> All right. So, and so we haven't talked about them yet because you wouldn't. No. And,
1: and so what did you get? What did you buy? I bought the Nexus um, setting circles, digital setting circles. Um, the company I believe is called Astro Devices. Uh, that's who makes them. And they're based out of Australia.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. So are some of our listeners. So that's neat to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Next, next, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and then we'll dive in. So what mount are you putting them on? That's what Mike asked last night.
1: Uh, On the Stellar View M2C. Yeah. um, There is a... They don't work on just every mount. Uh, They make, so the the company Astro Devices makes encoders that you can buy and they're not available for every mount under the sun, but they're available for an awful lot of popular mounts out there.
0: Yeah, I I see that in fact, like just in my own, and I don't know much about digital setting circles, but it always seems that the mounts or the telescopes that I'm interested in, if they're not um, electronic mounts, typically they aren't, uh, they can take these these digital setting circles, so they kind of end up like on the periphery of stuff that I'm reading all the time. I just never really uh, did the deep dive, and was always like, "Well, what are these and how do they work?" So let's let's start there. I'm familiar with the old school equatorial mount setting circles um, that consist of like those two uh, gradiated or graded measured whatever disc that kind of looks like they have centimeters on them Mm -hmm. and uh one of them is attached uh to the ra shaft one of them is attached to the deck shaft um of the equatorial mount the ra is divided into hours minutes seconds while declination is measured in degrees arc seconds uh arc minutes and uh you find stuff by simply aligning the mount to the north celestial pole and then kind of moving the telescope around in in those uh those circles, you know, which is basically slew in the telescope around until the numbers uh, match up with your desired target. But with digital setting circles, I'm kind of a little bit confused by it because they can't work that way because the, the, the stellar view mount is an LDAZ mount. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: so like, do you have to like orient that North or like, like, how does that even work? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let me, before I get into that, Chris, let me just quickly touch on uh, traditional setting circles on an EQ mount. That's where I started. And that's why I bought that Las Mandy GM nine mount because it has, it's, it's known for having really good setting circle rings on it because um, number one, they have to, uh, you know, be able to move and, and they're very well machined. They're, they're smooth, but you also need to have them be somewhat large enough so that the scale on those setting circles allows you to be more accurate. So like with cheaper or smaller setting circles, um, you you may not have all of the increments, you know, along the way. And as such, when you get everything oriented, you might be within like a plus or minus, you know, multiple degrees of your object. So you need to have larger setting circles so that you can really get it kind of accurized and help get things in that field of view. Uh, So the GM nine has larger setting circles, which, you know, drew me to it, but even when using it, it was still probably within a degree or two when I would find something uh, using those setting circles. And it was a little bit of a pain to orient them. Like you have to calibrate them every night, um, you know, to, to your location uh, and it's not hard, but I, I just didn't love the whole process. And then I'd have to turn on like, you know, a light to see where my marker was on the setting circle as I'm rotating the telescope and twisting my head around. <laughs> and it it really wasn't a fun experience, but they do work. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that sort of failed experiment, I guess, um, I've always been interested in uh, digital setting circles, mm-hmm. um, but I've always uh, always had it lower on my priority list because, you know, at the end of the day, you don't need these things. All you need is a a star chart Mm -hmm. and away you go, uh, you know, start star hopping and, and you can find all kinds of objects. Um, but I've always been intrigued, uh, just to make that process faster, easier, but also when observing in the backyard under light polluted skies, Uh, You know, you don't see all of the stars that are up there and star hopping becomes more challenging. You know, if you can't see a magnitude four or five star naked eye, sometimes that part of the sky, you don't see any stars at all. Mm -hmm. So then it becomes a little more challenging or time consuming to find what you really want. So With that being said, how does this thing work on an alt-as mount? Yeah. Um, What's super cool. um, So you get, you get a computer and you get two encoders. Uh, So, you know, one encoder for each of the axis on an alt-as mount, which is basically up, down, left, right. Mm -hmm. Um, Each of the encoders measures just over uh, 311,000 points on a circle. So it's exceptionally accurate. It senses any slight movement and, and really is, it allows you to dial in the object you're looking for. Um, so that, you know, that part of it is quite fascinating to me because some digital setting circles are like far less than that, like 10,000 points of measurement around a circle. Um, so, you know, this, this is, uh, you know, advantageous for us for sure. Um, but like you as kind of curious, like, you know, I know you have to align any kind of amount and sometimes aligning amounts, um, uh, can be annoying or time consuming. Um, but this was actually great. <laughs> it was super easy to do. Um, you turn on the mount and, or sorry, you turn on the computer after you've installed all the, uh, encoders and, um, it has a GPS built into it. So it does a time sync, uh, according to the GPS satellites. That is super important. Your time needs to be bang on for accuracy. Um, so that happens without any like user intervention and it happens pretty quickly. The next thing you do is you press the alignment option on the little computer. Um, and step one is you basically point your telescope, uh, at the Zenith. So straight up. Um, and I did all of this just eyeball. I didn't, uh, I didn't have like a level or anything. So pointed the telescope straight up, said it's pointing straight up. So hit Enter. Uh, and then you just do a two-star alignment. So I did the North Star. No, I did, uh, what did I do? Dubay in, in uh, Ursa Major. And I can't remember. You, you want to pick like basically stars at opposing points in the sky. And that gives you the most accurate uh, alignment. So I did my two-star alignment and I was ready to go. So turning it on and completing alignment took no more than 60 seconds. It was super fast. Wow. Yeah. And and the other thing here which is kind of important cuz I was really impressed with the accuracy is when I did the two star alignment like I don't I don't have an eyepiece with a reticle in it mm-hmm. um cuz what you really want for this type of w- with any kind of mount alignment is you want something with a reticle uh something that is like an eyepiece that's high powered mm-hmm. um so that you can uh, know that your alignment star is right in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um now I just did this with a uh, my um, Leica like zoom uh, at nine millimeters uh, and it was out of focus even, but I, I centered, I centered my alignment stars, just what I thought was close to center. And I was super impressed with the accuracy overall. And, and I did that intentionally. Like I, I didn't want this to be like a, I, I you know, I wanted to see how accurate it would be with just sort of a, you know, what I'd call maybe not a super uh, accurate alignment. mm-hmm do you need a illuminated reticle? Do you have one? Uh, I'm going to get one just to make it a little more accurate. Now I, I was, what's I have, that? I have one. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well you're, you're halfway to uh digital setting circles. Then.
0: Well, no, I was just going to say, <laughs> you can, why don't you just sort of borrow it on sort of permanently or something like that. It's uh, it, a, yeah. it's a really good one too. Oh, okay. Okay. It was, it was gifted to me by our friend Randall actually.
1: Oh, very nice. Yeah. Yeah, Very nice. You
0: found it. They were, it was, they were stopping making them. It's one of the old mead ones, but it's, um, it's like a 12 millimeter or 11.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Anyway, you can talk about that later, but it's, it's a really nice illuminated reticle and I've used it a little bit, just it works Mm -hmm. and it has like all the different, um, stuff on it. The newer ones from what I understand aren't as good and pretty good optical glass in it and that sort of thing. It was one of the more expensive ones. So, uh, but it'd be good, you know, if you can make make use of it, that'd be great. And then mm-hmm. I, I use it for, I forget what I was using, for some, some, there's some stuff that I do where I like to have that, but it's like, it's when I'm doing one of my projects, I use it, I won't get into it, but I only use it like once every two years when I'm working on a particular project. So hmm. yeah, you're going cool. to, to borrow it on indefinitely because it's just, it's actually, I was doing stuff last night and I had, to, I kept having to move it. It's in with all my gear and I'm like, why do I even have this? <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's, it's nice to have, and it's hard to get another one. So it's yeah. a nice piece of gear. Anyway, we can, we can move on. Um, let's see. So a couple things. So the first is you, you talked about, um, making sure that the mount is, um, connecting to the, the GPS satellites. And so I might ask you some stuff you've already mentioned, but do you have to make sure that the mound is orientated in any direction, or can you just sort of plunk it down and then, you know, like you said, you point the telescope up and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But like with an equatorial mount, you need to make sure you do that um, you know, North Celestial Pole alignment. Is there anything that's sort of akin to that, or is that what it's doing with the GPS satellites?
1: Yeah, this this is the beauty of these setting circles. You don't have to do any of that. And one other thing, you know, anybody that has used an equatorial mount uh before Um, particularly if you use tracking, one of the key things is you also have to, uh, level the mount. Like it, it can't be off kilter at all, or your accuracy of your tracking is going to be way off. Mm -hmm. Uh, doesn't matter with this. You could have it lopsided if you really wanted, and -hmm. it's still going to find objects for you. So if you're on uneven ground, no worries. It's great. Oh, that's interesting. Cause that's what I found with, uh, with the, tracking
0: mounts that i've used is that the the accuracy is really it's dependent on how much you level it and i you Mm -hmm. know uh when i read forums and people are saying i I can't get the mount to track properly and and, you know you say well is it level you know that's the if you don't level it properly then it's just it's it's just not going to do it but it that's pretty cool that it doesn't seem to uh be impacted by that uh too much so i understand that um there's databases of objects in there. This is sort of the next mm-hmm. thing that makes me very curious about the digital setting circles is that, um, what, what databases and catalogs are included in there? Can you upload like your own observing lists? Um, mm-hmm. how does that, that whole part of it work or have you had the time to explore, uh, that portion of it yet?
1: Yes, yes, I have. And it's a great qu- uh, question, Chris, Um, so maybe I'll just start with what's built into this thing, uh, from the factory. Uh, it's got, uh, about four and a half million objects, uh, in it, uh, 69 different catalogs.
0: I need, I need 5 million minimum.
1: (laughs) Well, then this might not be the product for you. Garbage. Garbage. (laughs) Um, so yeah, 69 catalogs. I'm not sure it's missing any, to be honest. Um, if you go to Astro Devices website, which is just astrodevices.com, mm-hmm. um, it, there's a PDF there and it lists all of the catalogs available, but there's all of the common stuff like uh, you know, NGC, Herschel, Messier, um you know, if you're a double star person like myself, there's the Washington double star catalog. There's the entire Struve catalog. Um, you know, if you're into clusters, there's the rubric open clusters. There's Hello. the, the mallot list. There's the, all sorts of stuff on here. The
0: like he's on there. We looked at Dodie's seven, I think last night might got it in a scope. 7.
1: 7. Uh, I'm just looking. Yeah. Yeah. dodi's open oh, clusters. It's got 41. everything then. 41. There's uh Sesmic. I'm not even sure what those are. What um, the
0: basil clusters.
1: Basil. BAS? Oh, yeah. you yeah. I think you, you caught one here. Basil uh, is not on here.
0: Ah, see, I love basil one there. It's in the middle of the little putter asterism near, um, the wild duck cluster there. And just, yeah, but so, there's only like six of those, so.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, that <laughs> might be part of it.
0: it. Might be too small for I.
1: Yeah. So. So anyway, it has all of this already built into it. Now it has a micro SD card that stores all of this stuff, so you can upload whatever you want as long oh, sure. as it has the coordinates. So you could. So I can yeah. even add the basil clusters. You can. Ah,
0: yes. Well, that's great.
1: Yeah, you can add whatever you
0: I've like. Thousand objects that are missing from the catalog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: But, but so what I really like too, is you can, uh, to, to one of your questions is you can also upload, uh, your observing lists so you Uh can make your own custom lists and it's stored on this thing. So Uh what really intrigues me about this is, you know, when I'm going to observe, uh, all I really need is this little computer thing. And I don't need to take a whole bunch of atlases and paper lists to reference. It's just all on the computer, um, which is handy. Um, and then the last thing maybe that I'll say here, Chris, is that uh, you have an option to get Wi-Fi on it or no Wi-Fi. So I think the Wi-Fi option was another $40 or something like that. Get it? So I I added it. And what it does is it creates a Wi-Fi hotspot on, on the little Nexus unit. Yeah. And um, you can connect like your phone or your tablet to that. And then it also interfaces with like, um, uh, sky safari, uh, and other planetarium software. So then basically anything in sky safari, you can just use that to, uh, kind of direct the computer of as to what you would like to see. So it just, it it opens it up again, you know, to different feet or different possibilities because within sky safari, you, you know, you can create observing lists or plans, and uh or just pan around in sky safari at objects and sort of hit you know select and and then it pushes that information to the nexus computer and and you know exactly where to go with the telescope and, and maybe one thing i should say um you know i think you and i maybe are just you know our knowledge of this and how it works uh, we're, i think we're omitting a, a key part is once you pick one of these objects so you know let's say you want messier 31 you want to look at the andromeda galaxy within about 10 seconds or less, actually, you select, you know, the Messier catalog and then M31. And then on the screen, there's like an up arrow and maybe a left arrow or a right arrow. And you just move the telescope up until the numbers on the screen say zero. And then, you know, you go left or right until the numbers on the screen say zero. And that means you're looking at that object right now in the telescope. Yeah, that's...
0: I was going to ask you about that, like, like the interface, like, and how, how it works with those, with those lists. So I just want to, I just want to dive into that a little bit more. So if you want, if you want to look, so, so, so when you turn it on and you sort of why I'm guessing, like when you walk through the initial stuff, like it's kind of prompting you and whatever it's, is it like, kind of like the other, um, digital mounts that I've seen, or do you have to like futz with it a lot?
1: Um, there's really the, the FUTs factor is quite low on this. Yeah. Um, you turn it on, it doesn't prompt you, but you know, alignment is one of the first options. No. And then once it's aligned, I think catalog is like now the first option and okay. or lists or something like that.
0: And then you choose that. And then, and then it is like, how do you, how do you function in it? Like, do you scroll like are there buttons that you scroll down? Is it, is it like a tap screen or are there like, um like analog physical buttons that you're pushing like what is the interface actually actually like
1: yeah so it is buttons mm-hmm. um there's up down left right buttons and then a full numeric keypad as well okay. and then i think there's like an okay and an and an escape button And, um, the way it works, uh, you know, with four and a half million objects, you know, that could be overwhelming to try to actually navigate through. So what it does is everything has a number to it. So rather than scrolling through the 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 list of 69 catalogs if you wanted the Messier catalog, it's number 44. So you just hit 44, boom, okay. you're in the Messier catalog. And then you would just hit, uh, you know, if I go back to my example of Andromeda, you would just put in 31 hit. Okay. And then boom, you've got the arrows on the screen, telling you how to move your telescope to find M 31. So it's quite fast in that regard. Um, The other thing too, is uh, the screen is backlit as well as the buttons, uh, red. Um, And what is, again, just every design aspect of this thing has been uh, uh, well thought and implemented. Um, You and I talk about bright lights, you know, even if they're red, they can be too bright. Mm -hmm. This has, I believe, 256 different levels of brightness for the display and it goes all the way to like turning off essentially. So Mm -hmm. you can customize it to exactly how much light you want out of it.
0: Okay. And uh, yeah, I was going to ask about the, the brightness and what about the screen size? Because one of the things that, that I often notice, um, and, and it's often not apparent during the day, but at night our eyes work quite different. So how do you find the screen size? How big is the screen? and how big is the text and do you find uh like the size of the screen and text um working well for you so far
1: so far so good um i don't have the measurement of the screen but it's large enough that when i'm sitting back at the eyepiece uh it's quite easy to see Um, okay no no struggle at all oh so you
0: can see it from that you don't have to like get your eyes up really close like some of the hand controllers
1: No, no, it's way better than a hand controller. Um, Like I've, I've used the Celestron SE mounts, SE eight or whatever, multiple times. In fact, I have one. Um, It works okay, but this display far easier to read. Like I find uh, sometimes those handheld controllers, uh, even like the contrast, you know, between the backlighting and the characters is sometimes a little blurry, almost, mm-hmm. um, or or just not super apparent. And uh, the display on on the Nexus device is wonderful, it's super easy to read. And um, you know, the other thing too is I wear progressive glasses during the daytime, uh, you know, because my eyes are aging and I I have problems reading things uh, without you know without these glasses and I I've always been uh, nearsighted so you know seeing any kind of distance I would need glasses but when I observe I can't wear my progressives they they just aren't good for astronomy so I go back to my old glasses which means I can't read things that are close I it's blurry yeah um but you know the the computer the nexus computer the size of the fonts and everything plus the distance it it works perfectly for me which Again, this is going to be a game changer for me and a huge quality of life improvement for astronomy. Because since I got these progressives about two years ago, I get so annoyed observing um, because I would put on my other glasses, which are like great for distance and great for astronomy. But then when I would look at a star chart, I'd have to take the glasses off yeah. um, and then put the glasses on and take the glasses off. And, and it's just annoying over the course of a night. Yeah. I don't have to do that now. I, I just leave my glasses on and I'm not going to have to take them off to read my star charts anymore, which uh, I think is going to be, a, you know, a real, a real nice improvement for my observing. Nice. Um.
0: So on the screen and so, in relation to like a cell phone, is the screen about the same size
1: as like a cell phone screen, or a little bit bigger? Or well, if you're, you know, I have a what do I have here? An iPhone XR or something like that. It's much wider. Like if I'm holding my phone, you know, I guess kind of in its normal configuration, it's much wider than my iPhone. Okay. Um, and I would say it's probably about an inch tall, something like that. Okay. All right. And is it is it
0: red? text on a dark background or is it black text on a red background or what is the uh, configuration or can you yeah. change
1: black black text on a red background okay. uh and i don't believe you can change that i think the only option you have um yeah is the brightness settings i believe cool
0: so do you think like you mentioned maybe that it would replace charts but like in my mind i i would still see this as being used in in at least somewhat conjunction with the charts because at least for, for some of the objects that I'm hunting down, they're so faint. I need to kind of see their context, like how big are they in relation to, mm-hmm. uh, to other objects. So I'm just wondering, um, if, if you think that it, that it will actually replace the charts like a hundred percent, or do you still see yourself kind of using it in conjunction, uh, with like double star, uh, charts or anything like that?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, great point. And, and certainly not a full replacement, I would say 80 to 90% uh, replacement of charts. I think if you are chasing down some real faint objects, you still will want to know the star field. Um, yeah. and to know it's, you know, just to the left of, uh, you know, a, a prominent star or something like that. Um, so for sure, you'd still want to chart for some objects, and 100%. I would still want to chart like for the planning phase, you know, before observing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for the most part, when I'm observing, I'm probably not looking at a chart. Uh, if anything, I might look at a paper list just to input like an NGC number or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I I think the there's there's a number of reasons why I would want like why somebody may want to consider a digital setting circle. And I think one of them is, is just that speed to find an object. You know, if you think about like, okay, I need to look at my list. Okay. Now I go to my star chart, get, you know, a good view of the field. Now I go to the telescope, I start star hopping. Um, And hopefully, you know, if you're, if you're efficient, you know, you find it on your first try, but sometimes you go back to the star chart because you're not quite sure you know, and, and sometimes this process can play out and a lot of time goes by before you find your object. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if it, even if you do get it on the first try, I still think the setting circles are going to be a lot faster for you. Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: All right. I got to ask a very Saskatchewan centric question. What temperature is a good down to? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I know. I, I think it'll be good for temperatures that I'm good in for the most part. You yeah. know, I don't like to take a telescope out when it's probably much colder than minus 10 or 12 because just things start to not work so well. Yeah. Um, yeah you must. know, <laughs> yeah, you, when it starts getting colder than that, to me, it's binocular time. Yep. Uh, from what I've read and, you know, my my usage is limited so far, but from what I've read that this unit can take cold temperatures fairly well. Um, Like when I was observing Sunday night, I think it was like minus five or six out plus a little bit of a wind and there was no issue with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can tell you when I've used the Celestron SE anywhere close to zero, like even on the plus side of zero, the display gets really slow. Like you can see the temperature affecting it and it's pretty annoying because it almost becomes unusable at that point yeah okay well that's that sounds
0: promising then if you've had it down because i kind of find that either things work below zero um to a decent temperature or they don't like typically if it's good at minus six it's going to be good at minus 12 or minus 13 and then you know really once you get down to that zero degree f or whatever it is uh minus you know, in 19 or whatever it is. I find that, like you said, like you just start getting so cold, you don't want to be out there and mm-hmm. and neither does any piece of equipment. So, uh, so it sounds like it's, it's going to work, uh, you know, well enough for actual observing purposes versus, you know, just putting it in a freezer and seeing if it, if it fails at minus 40.
1: Yeah, exactly. The other thing too, it has a a built in lithium battery, so you don't have to worry about build or bringing a separate power source. Um, so I am a little curious too. when temperatures get cool, um, how long that battery will last, you know, um, you know, and, and also just, can you go camping for two or three nights, uh, and, and just use it, or do you have to worry about charging it during that period? Um, so I, I do need to discover a little bit of that. So is it a custom battery or what? what's the battery like? Is it like a double A or? I, I don't know. I just know it's a lithium battery. Yeah. I don't know details.
0: And so to charge it, you just, you plug it into like a USB adapter or something like that.
1: Yeah. You can charge it via USB or you can get a power adapter and just plug it into a typical wall outlet.
0: Yeah. That should be good enough. And like I find with my uh, Skywatcher, easy GTI, um, like it has, I think three or four or six or whatever it is, uh, double A's and it said it should last like so long, but I think because I mostly just use mine for tracking and I don't use the go-to at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I get like, you know, four months out of it, in good weather, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, it can go, it can go pretty far. So I, I don't doubt that you, you, sh- you should get, I think you should get weeks and weeks out of it, but, uh. That sounds uh, that sounds pretty good. So next question, I see the Nexus system, um, and like I said at the at the start, when I'm looking at the telescopes, and I'm looking at a lot of different telescopes, and I, I like looking at telescopes. I don't like buying telescopes, but um, I see them on like Altaz mounts, like like you're using. I also see them on um, Dobsonian's. I see the Nexus on like basically anything that's an Altaz telescope. It seems like uh, they have a system for How transferable is the system that you bought? How transferable is it between telescopes? Like if you, if you did say, you know what, little refractors, they're done. I'm done with these. It's only 16, 16 inch dobs for me, you know, and you (laughs) said, you know, I want to switch over. Can you do that with the device that you bought?
1: You can, um, from what I understand, it's compatible with pretty much any encoder out there. It doesn't even have to be a Nexus or Astro devices encoder, Um, it does work with EQ mounts as well. You can specify what kind of mount you have. Um, and what is really neat is, um, the computer, the Nexus computer you buy once and that's it. And, and what you would end up doing if you have multiple mounts, is buying encoders for those mounts. The encoders are not uh interchangeable, like my M2C encoders, that's the only mount that they will work on. Oh, okay. um, but if I want to add encoders to a different mount, I buy those. And then I would just take the computer, the little Nexus computer, and just connect it to those encoders and away I go. And what's really neat, again, they've thought of everything. Um, I believe you can store up to five different mounts. On the computer, so you basically say, "Okay, oh. I'm using my uh, View M2C. It knows it's an old AS mount and it's configured for that." Or, let's say I had a Dob and I had encoders on there, I would just store my Dob telescope on the computer and then just say, "Okay, tonight I'm using the Dob," and you know, two clicks and it knows now that it's a different telescope with oh. uh, with different encoders. That is cool.
0: I hadn't really quite thought of that, but that is cool. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought that maybe you just had to like completely reconfigure. That's why I phrased my question that way. Like you've gone in. But I mean, yeah, of course. You you own, you, you don't get rid of the TAC TSA 102. You simply augment it with the views through the 16-inch that I know you're gonna buy. Change from <laughs> buying a 16-inch, I'm just <laughs> yeah. Maybe All one right. day. Maybe one day, maybe one day. So and I feel like I, I had trouble figuring out where I was going to put this question, um, sort of getting to the end here. But mm-hmm. why did you choose the Nexus system? Now, I keep running into the Nexus just for the type of telescopes I'm looking at, the mounts I'm looking at. So then I was like, well, like what other systems are out there and why why is this one such a popular choice? Like, why did you pick this one?
1: Yeah. Um, I think it might and, and I might be wrong here, but I believe it's the only one being made now. Uh there used to be one called Sky Commander. And okay. um they were the two competing digital setting circle makers for a while, but uh Nexus just in from what I've read, uh, seemed to be the better unit because first of all, it had a full numeric keypad, whereas the Sky Commander I think was just up, down, left, right. Uh-oh. So the Nexus was quicker, easier to navigate. Uh the Nexus has more features, you know, with the Wi-Fi and and some other stuff. Um and I believe the Nexus encoders have far more points on that circle like I mentioned 311,000. Um so it, it it from what I've read it's it's been the best one out there and like I say I I think it's the only one out there right now. Um yeah. so uh, that's how I landed on it.
0: Okay, I guess it might be fair to say that Nexus ran circles around the competition. Oh yes, yes, you could say that. I think <laughs> I could hear like people just like click, yeah. like shutting down. They're done with these guys. Okay,
1: yeah, yeah. move on to the next podcast. Move on to the next one. I think. <laughs> so, how much and where to buy? Okay, how much? Um, so I, uh, you, you have a couple of options. You know, when you're buying it, I mentioned the Wi-Fi. Uh, if you want a plug in like wall adapter charger. That's like another $20. And I got the mounting plate for it. So all in all, including shipping was 750 us dollars. Um, and, uh, I bought it direct from Astro devices and here may, here might be the best part of the story, Chris. And I, I can't recommend enough to buy it direct from, uh, Astro devices, uh, because of the support so here's what happened. You you get everything, it's it's well packaged, the instructions are very clear about how to install the encoders. Um, I open up my Stellarview M2C mount, and it's not quite right. Uh, the the axis, the 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 alt and the as axis are offset in the mount, and mine were reversed in terms of offset compared to what the manual was telling me, and wow. as such. I couldn't fit an encoder plate on, like it just wouldn't install. And Mm -hmm. I was kind of devastated (laughs) thinking like, what has happened here? Why is this not working? Um, So I sent an email to Astro devices uh, just saying, Hey, you know, just ordered the device, just got it. I'm trying to install it. And I ran into this issue Um, and I submitted this uh, email, like I think on a Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon, my iPhone, I'm getting a FaceTime message from Australia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're like, I'm not giving them my credit card. No.
1: <laughs> well, pretty much. At first, I'm like, this is a scam. You get these weird calls from different places yeah, yeah. all yeah. the time. So I ignored it. And then my, like, then I like minutes later, I'm getting a cellular call, like just a regular phone call from Australia. Oh, Assistant. Go- yeah, it clicked Locked. in. I'm just kidding. It clicked in. I'm like, I wonder if this is related to my email answer the phone. And it's Serge who owns Astro devices Wow, calling me to say, hi, hi, Shane. I got your email. I think this is a simple fix. And, um, Anybody that uh, is familiar with the Stellarview M2C mount, it's basically like, uh, you know, lengthwise it's a rectangle, like it's kind of long, but height and width of this thing are the exact same. So it's a square that way. Yeah. And, and Serge told me, he's like, I have no idea why this happens, but he says occasionally during manufacturing, they rotate that box. So then the offset axis are incorrect. Oh. And that's how mine came. So he said, all you have to do is take the axis out, flip it put them back in and you're in business. And oh. that's what I did and everything oh. works wonderful. And I was like, I, so not only did he solve my problem, I couldn't believe the customer service, it was phenomenal. And if you read on Cloudy Nights, uh, many others echo the same thing that Serge is just a, a great person to deal with and uh, you know supports the product exceptionally well. I can't say anything bad about this in any way. It's an outstanding product. Um, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's really going to be a quality of life improvement for for my observing. Yeah, well, that that is important. And it's something
0: for people to keep in mind, like um, look into the customer service of the companies that you're buying your astronomy gear from. Um, in general, most of them are really good, to be frank. Um, but uh, the the reason is, is that all this stuff is so customizable that if you don't have that support, like I know with, uh, with my, one of my Skywatcher mounts, I ran into that issue, um, last year, the year before, whenever it was. And I thought, oh, you know, Skywatcher is a big company. Are they going to be able to help me out with this and whatever? And so I wrote them and it was like, again, like, like a positive experience, like you had, and they were able to fix my problem. And, uh, you know, I can't, can't say enough good things about uh, the Skywatcher support. So it's really nice to know that, uh, that Nexus, um, is is similar uh, to to a lot of the other companies in that regard. That's really great to hear.
1: Yeah, yeah. If anybody's interested in in digital setting circles, um, definitely take a look at the Nexus ones, and uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed.
0: So seven fifty. That was for both the encoders and the computer.
1: Yes, yeah. Encoders typically, at least for the mounts that I've been interested in, uh, they are about two hundred and fifty U.S. dollars. Yeah, that's not so. Too- Yeah, that's what I thought. And now that I've you know I have the computer, which is the expensive part, I can buy encoders for other mounts, like I mentioned earlier, and just swap the computer. So once you get into the system, uh, you know, it makes expansion, I think, a little easier. Hmm.
0: Yeah, this really got me, and we're we're pretty much getting to the end here, but um you know, it really got me thinking because you know, I, I like the idea of being able to create my own lists and then you know, having, you know, and I have multiple telescopes and, uh, I'd like to have, I would like to have a larger, um, reflector someday, maybe someday soon we'll see. Um, but, uh, you know, just, just the opportunity to be able to transfer them across. So, uh, yeah, it's super interesting. Thanks for the Shane. Anything else to add before we conclude this episode?
1: No, the only thing, well, yeah, maybe one thing, Chris, um, you, I've, I've had limited usage of it. So maybe we revisit this in six months after I've, I've played around with it a lot more because maybe I'll have more to talk about. Maybe I won't, but, um, so, you know, initial, initial thoughts are, this is going to be a really good product for me.
0: We'll do a Nexus episode then. All right. (laughs) I'll stop there. Well, I'd say that I enjoyed this conversation, but I feel like this could eventually cost me some money, so I'm not sure how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, it's that's it's a neat device. Um, yeah, I could definitely see using this in conjunction with with the charts because for me, anyway, and the stuff that I'm looking at, I find that um, I just kind of finding that general field is one step and then kind of sorting out the the uh, faint nebulae using filters and stars and that sort of thing is is sort of a, a another level of challenge. So sometimes it can take me a long time to find stuff. But with that, uh, we'll conclude the episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, we would appreciate if you could do us a favor and leave us a five-star review and say something fun and positive about the show. And that will help other observers out there find actual astronomy in 2023. We're always happy to get your observing reports and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody.